Hey, good morning. It's Jeannie Yandel. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. What a week. Seattle's getting a new voting system, local tech companies are laying people off, and spoofed Twitter accounts wreaked havoc, which is really just one aspect of the overall havoc Twitter's going through. We'll get into all that with Jody Ann Bury and Andrew Walsh, but first, let's get you caught up. Workers at more than 100 Starbucks stores in 25 states picketed yesterday. The labor action coincided with Red Cup Day, the day the company gives out branded Starbucks cups to customers who buy something qualifying. The strike, workers say, is over Starbucks' attempt to, quote, bully a union effort out of existence. The chair of the Washington State Democratic Party is in hot water after allegedly threatening other Democrats over the Secretary of State race. Axios reports Tina Podlodowski threatened to withhold funds to Democrats who either endorsed the nonpartisan Secretary of State candidate or agreed to meet with her. State Rep Joe Fitzgibbon said Podlodowski made these threats several times before the election. Podlodowski denied making threats in an interview with Axios in October. And... If you're looking to add a canine to your family, now might be the time. The Humane Society of Tacoma and Pierce County is waiving adoption fees for adult dogs during the month of November. The shelter's in need of extra space because of an increase in canine upper respiratory illness. Seattle now can confirm that the approximately 30 dogs available for adoption are very cute. Welcome to the end of a cold, sunny week in Seattle, a beautifully sunny week. I've really been enjoying the sunshine, but of course, the rain is coming back tomorrow, just in time for Thanksgiving. Shout out this week, by the way, to Senator Patty Murray, who will now be third in line if anything happens to the president. Also to Julio Rodriguez, the American League Rookie of the Year. And while we're giving out shout outs, shout out to Jody Ann Bury. She's a speaker, writer, and author of the forthcoming book, Authentic. Hi, Jody Ann. Hello, hello. And shout out to Andrew Walsh. He's the co host of the podcast, Too Beautiful to Live. Hi, Andrew. Hey, not to brag, but I also wrote a book of Mad Libs this summer, if anybody's <laughs> interested in it. Jody Ann, are you writing Mad Libs as well, or are your aspirations somewhat higher? I will say this. I don't know any better way to describe racism in the workplace than Mad Libs. <laughs> Just insert words. Maybe that's what people's diversity, <laughs> equity, inclusion policy sound like. <laughs> Just insert words here. Oh, my God. Now I want to change the entire format of this conversation. But I'm going to stick to the job I'm supposed to do here. So we got a clearer sort of answer this week on potential changes to Seattle's voting system. So we got a yes vote on the first part of City Proposition 1. This means more people said they want our voting system to change than those who don't. Now we get to look at the second part of Proposition 1, which dictates how our voting system will change, right? There were two options that Seattleites voted on there, 1A and 1B. 1A was approval voting, which is losing big time, to 1B, which is ranked choice voting. But I have to say that I followed this issue pretty closely. I actually edited a couple of things about this for my job. And I still, when reading the ballot, found what I was reading very confusing. Jody Ann, I wonder if I'm alone there or if some people just guessed when they were voting. Maybe they skipped voting altogether on Prop 1 because they found it confusing. What was your experience like with that? 
I quite enjoyed <laughs> the question. I think it it brought me back to kind of AP political science where it's like, this is democracy and we get to share <laughs> our vote on these random obscure things about our lives, you know? And I was like, oh yeah, I do have a voice in like how we vote. And so I think the idea of it was really cool to me to just mm. be able to lend my voice. Now, having taken design courses in grad school, I think the way that the questions were kind of designed had a lot of flaws in it. And that was part of probably the friction that people had with that question. And I think because we're so socialized in this digital space of how we take surveys that it's like, if this, then that, like this kind of clear decision Hmm. tree. So for the second part of the question to be like, I don't really care what you said (laughs) in the first part of the question. What do you think? Right. I think that is a huge source of friction for people. I did see on the Reddit thread that someone said, um, ironically, ranked choice voting would have solved the issue. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, we'll say in future, no one should have to have advanced degrees to be able to even decipher this. Like, I want someone who is not informed and not really, you know, paying attention or not really thinking about the form of survey design to be able to weigh in as a citizen, as a resident yes. of this place in a way that they feel really confident about what they're choosing. And it just yeah. doesn't seem that um, this design had really hit the mark. Yeah. I mean, I will say that it does look like we're headed towards using ranked choice voting in city elections, right? And so if there's anybody listening uh, who thinks I still don't actually understand what that means, I just want to point you to this really great piece that our friends at Soundside did uh, explaining exactly what ranked choice voting is. We will link to that piece in the show notes. Andrew, I'm wondering whether you think ranked choice voting in city elections will make a big difference. I like ranked choice voting, generally speaking, to the degree that I understand it, having never lived in a place that has ranked (laughs) choice voting, right? But the way it's presented, I like it. This was the only issue in my entire voting life where I voted one way and then started rooting against what I voted for, if that makes sense. (laughs) Because even though I'm for ranked choice voting, I had been reading various like pretty, you know, progressive blogs like Publicola and and The Stranger or whatever. And they were saying, hey, listen, we're for ranked choice voting, too, but we can do it better in a different way with some help Mm. from the legislature down the road. We don't have to get in the details of it. Um, And so I voted that way. So I voted no for changing the system. But if we do Mm -hmm. change it, yes, let's do ranked choice voting. And then I just started. This is so weird. I just started driving around town and I started seeing all of the little signs, the cute little signs for like, yes to RCV or whatever. And I started to feel really guilty about voting no. And I was like, I'm sorry, little sign. I'm sorry, little sign. And so I'm happy to hear that we're going to give it a go. I just want I just want the experiment to go well, because maybe I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder as somebody who lives in the city and absolutely loves the city. But I often feel like the um, nation, especially more conservative areas, are always pointing at Seattle and saying, look, this liberal city can't do it right. Right. Mm. And I don't want it to be a failed experiment in a move toward making voting more equitable, you know? Yeah. That's fair. I like the experimentation. Like, and I I think we don't get to have these conversations about the intricacies of our voter laws. And and maybe that's why I was just kind of 50-50 on that first half. But I was like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. Like, (laughs) 
I mean, let's shake it up, right? Let's see. And like, <laughs> maybe this gives more people choice and um, feeling like they have to actually compete for our attention and um, and what we believe in and all that. So I'm I'm down for it. And I'm, I'm excited to see that we're willing to try something new with something that is so um, vital to how we experience life in the city. Mm. Well, let's move on to another story this week that also arguably sort of defines who we are as a city, which is the tech industry here. There have been some big layoffs in tech announced recently. Amazon is cutting 10,000 jobs. Likely a lot of those will be in the Seattle area. 700 local Meta employees were laid off this week. And OfferUp, which is the app that helps you sell your stuff, is cutting 19% of its workforce. And Andrew, I think a lot of people might be wondering how much of an oh crap moment this is for our local economy. What's your feeling on that? Is this like a harbinger of economic doom for us? Well, as an economist. <clears throat> yes, economist just kidding. and Mad Lib author Andrew Walsh. What's your thought on this? I'm actually an ill-informed podcaster, but thank you for asking. <laughs> I have the same question as you do, and I was trying to read up on this as much as possible this week. It sort of seems like a lot of real economists are saying that there seems to be more, more of a divide between the tech sector this time and the rest of the economy. It sounds like there are other sectors of the economy that are still hiring, and if not hiring, at least like really trying to hold on to their employees. So luckily, mm. it, it doesn't seem right now like this is another 2001. Um, I'm talking about the year 2001, not the movie, um, as far <laughs> as the, the bursting of the tech bubble. The thing that strikes me, though, I mean, a couple of things on a more human level is what's happening at Amazon just seems straight up Orwellian. Like days went by since the news broke of 10 thousand layoffs days went by 48 hours at least i think before anybody in a leadership position at the company itself actually communicated with the employees as to what was going on and layoff situations are they're a part of life and they're always scary and i don't think there's mm. ever the perfect way to do it but this just sounds terrible and then for Amazon, of course, they finally release an official statement from their HR department or something. And it just was like, well, of course, our employees are priority number one or whatever. Oh, You're just boy. like, are you are you serious? Is this a Dilbert cartoon? Like, what are you even like? Would you even have to say those words? That is so just untrue the way that you you've on record have treated your employees. So I feel bad for everybody who went through that. Mm. That's a really good point. Jody Ann, you're nodding along as Andrew's talking. What are you thinking about this? Well, I think to the earlier point about Mad Libs of like company communications, we can write the script for a lot of these companies in this process. Mm. And I think for a lot of people who have gone through that in the tech sector and other sectors of um, that they've worked in, like we know that what they say is not actually what's happening within the company and how people are experiencing it. So I do feel like on a very, very human level, um, being unexpectedly um, let go is not easy, right? Mm. I'm thinking very specifically about women, people of color, uh, people in people functions, diversity, equity, and inclusion functions who are also on the front lines of people who were let go um, when companies were doing layoffs at the top of the pandemic. 
I'm thinking about people who are pregnant, people who have disabilities, people who maybe just recently disclosed a disability or particular family challenge. Um, particularly in the tech sector, I'm thinking about folks who rely on these tech companies for their visas and the way that they support their families. So I think on a very human level, there is a population of folks that I am worried about that we don't think of when we think about the tech industry, right? There are a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are impacted by this who are underrepresented, marginalized, and who might be particularly or uniquely uh, vulnerable in the workforce and stuff like that. And so I'm thinking about the like individual human impact. And then when you scale out, I mean, it's a whole different narrative of kind of what this means in terms of the economy and tech and Seattle and, um, and all of that, that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out here that the New York Times is reporting that the cuts at Amazon, at least, are concentrated in devices, Alexa, but also retail and HR. So we're not talking about programmers necessarily or software developers. And so to the point that you both made, you know, who gets impacted here? We kind of gloss over that conversation. I'm also reflecting on... um, my own experience of sort of uh, labor-related news headlines over the last several months. And it felt like just a couple of months ago, everybody was sort of wringing their hands over the great resignation and shortages of workers. And it now feels like the dominant narrative has been yanked over to what's happening in the tech sector here. And I wonder if it's just to all of our detriment that we have short memories when it comes to what's (laughs) actually happening in workplaces and to different worker populations. To me, that speaks to, and again, I'm no expert on these things, but I just am, I'm very anxious about the power that we put in the hands of these huge tech companies. They can control so much. I mean, not just these huge sectors of our economy, but literally our politics here locally and nationally. And what they seem to do is take these huge swings. They just go like Meta just hires all these people because during the pandemic, they think, hey, we're going to have this metaverse that's going to be huge. And then, Mm. you know, a couple of years later, Mark Zuckerberg's just like, oopsie. And then suddenly just thousands upon thousands of people are just cut off from their from their living. And like, I just feel like we just give these companies so much sway over our lives and and all kinds of different ways. Now, again, layoffs happen to big companies, small companies, but it just seems like these swings that they're taking are bigger and bigger. Mm. Andrew, you could not have given us a better segue to our next topic, which is the semi-public meltdown of Twitter. If we're talking about large tech companies, corporations that have a lot of sway in our lives, we should be talking about what's happening at Twitter right now. I mean, if you haven't been paying attention, a very quick recap of stuff that's happened since our last Casual Friday episode over in Twitter land. Uh, Twitter started allowing people to pay for verified checkmarked accounts. So then a bunch of spoof accounts popped up impersonating people and corporations One account in particular spoofed the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly and tweeted that insulin would be free, which crashed the company's stock. At that point, Twitter then reversed its policy of letting people pay to get a blue checkmark. They also removed the ability to change your display name. And this happened right after Halloween. So there are like a handful of people I follow who still have Halloween themed display names. I personally find that delightful, but I know that's problematic on a larger scale. I mean, there's so much to say about this story. And Jodi Ann, I'm just going to ask you this because I'm not sure where to start exactly. Are we 
bad people for reveling a little bit in the entertainment value and maybe the schadenfreude of all this? Well, I will say this. Uh, schadenfreude is my favorite word ever. <laughs> like, it really is. <laughs> as much as we want to delight in the misfortune of Twitter and kind of what's going on with Elon Musk, I don't think that makes us bad people. I think it makes us victims of short memories, right? Mm. Uh, Elon Musk is the wealthiest person on the planet, right? He is doing what wealthy people do, which is just playing in people's lives with mm. reckless abandon with very few consequences. And so we're getting all wrapped up in Twitter drama, right? And kind of key keying on the internet of kind of what's happening. And, and at the end of the day, Elon Musk still wins, right? Yeah. But what I loved about what happened this past few weeks, especially with the insulin. And now you can always, always depend on social media activists and people who are just kind of poking the bear and really galvanizing us as a culture to start asking really cool questions. I didn't know anything about the insulin patent, right? I didn't really know that much about kind of what was happening with insulin and this critical life-saving medication that people were making impossible decisions about to like, you know, support their families or like ensure that their kids and their loved ones stay alive, right? Like, and so when that happened, when Twitter got to like tank their their stock prices and I don't want to lose that part of this, you know what I'm saying? Mm. I don't want to lose that at all to really say like, wow, as a community, right, as people that are just, you know, on our computers and asking questions and bringing research and bringing other investigative journalism to start kind of take this as an opportunity to pry that crack open, Right. And to really create some type of structural change like that makes me so excited. Mm. The opportunity is to get your hands in there and keep widening the crack. It sounds like you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I know this is a Seattle podcast, but as a New Yorker, right, like when you're running for that train and you could just get those two fingers in that door, <laughs> hope is not lost. You know what I'm saying? Like that door might open, right? That door might open. And that's that's what I think is so exciting about about all of this. And so, yes, we can ha-ha Elon, but what I really want to know is like, all right, what are we going to do with this, right? Like, like let's mm. really kind of pull our sleeves up and um, and create some like sustaining change. Mm. Jody ann I love your vision for a hopeful future here. And I hope that's where we're headed and I want to get on board with that. But first, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving for a second. It's happening next week. Weirdly, it feels like a million work tasks away for me, but it's actually less than a week away. I mean, I'm not going near the before times Thanksgivings I used to do yet. I'm not comfortable with that yet. Andrew, what about you? What does your Thanksgiving look like this year? Yeah, we are having family, like family visiting from out of town for the first time in a, in a long time. My partner's mom and sister are going to be coming over here. And I can't remember the last time we've had a, a Thanksgiving. I mean, clearly it was pre-pandemic. So yeah, I think it's going to be about four or five of us and it's going to be nice and warm and cozy. And I do love that, that part of the season. I'm going to try to not ruin the uh, Brussels sprouts this year. And I always try to say the extra S in Brussels sprouts. I don't know why it's important, but I feel like it, it is. Okay. Well, good job. Thank you. You did it. You pulled it off. Jody Ann, what about you? What are you going to do for Thanksgiving? I will probably be writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> 
my neighbor will take pity on me and bring me some scraps from the table. Um, oh my gosh. But no, I had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving last year. I went to New York, got to spend it with my family. My niece also turned 21 around that time. And so it was just so good to have like a wonderful, incredible, delicious, very Jamaican Thanksgiving dinner. And so I think to right side, you know, the balance of that, I'll probably be home alone with my dog eating leftovers or a salad or something. And maybe Andrew can bring you some Brussels sprouts. I was going to yes. say, can we can we bring you some food, please? Not to be presumptuous, but I will have leftovers. And I have a lot of those Gladware things. Yes, yep. please. I love Brussels sprouts and would <laughs> love to have some sprouts. Oh my gosh. I love a casual Friday episode that also turns into a meal train. I'm very pro <laughs> this whole situation. Thank you both so much for talking with me today, by the way. Jodi Ann Bury is an author, speaker, and writer. Her book, Authentic, is coming out next year. And Andrew Walsh is the co-host of the podcast, Too Beautiful to Live. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Claire McGrain produced today's show. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeannie Yandel. See you Monday.